Hello, and thank you for tuning in. I'm Anna Miljacki, Professor of Architecture at MIT and Director of the Critical Broadcasting Lab. And on behalf of the Architectural League of New York and the Critical Broadcasting Lab, I welcome you to our architecture podcast series titled, I Would Prefer Not To. I Would Prefer Not To is an oral history project conducted through audio interviews on the topic of perhaps the most important kind of refusal in architects' toolboxes, refusal of the architectural commission. By definition, the topic of refusal stays hidden from public scrutiny and thus also hidden from history. Withdrawals of this kind tend not to leave paper trails and are not easy to examine or learn from. And yet the lessons contained in architects' deliberations about and decisions not to engage are politically relevant and urgent. Decisions to not engage a commission or types of commissions or commissions with certain characteristics inevitably forfeit potential profit, placing other values above it, at least momentarily. My guest in this episode is Michael Maltzen. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Glad to be here, Anna. Michael Maltzen founded Michael Maltzen Architecture in 1995 as an architecture and urban design practice that works globally across a wide range of typologies, from cultural institutions to city infrastructure. The firm has been recognized with five Progressive Architecture Awards, numerous citations from local, state, and national chapters of the AIA, the Rudy Brunner Foundation's Gold Medal for Urban Excellence, the Zumtobel Group Award for Innovations for Sustainability and Humanity in the Built Environment, and a 2020 Best of the Millennium AIA LA Honor Award. The firm and its projects have been widely featured in national and international publications and have been exhibited in museums worldwide. And Michael Maltzen himself is a fellow of the American Institute of Architects and received the 2016 AIA Los Angeles Gold Medal. He is a recipient of the American Academy of Arts and Letters Architecture Award and was elected to the National Academy of Design in 2020. Michael Maltzen Architecture has been steadily transforming their home base, City of LA, with numerous large and small housing commissions, and especially through their sustained collaboration with the Skid Row Housing Trust, a nonprofit housing developer focused on providing housing for homeless individuals. Also in LA, Michael Maltzen Architecture just completed the stunning Sixth Street Viaduct. Their recent work with academic and cultural institutions has included the Moody Center for the Arts at Rice University, MoMA's Queens Museum, MIT Vassar Street Residential Hall here down the street, and the Winnipeg Art Gallery Inuit Art Center. We may get to talk about some of this work specifically, and certainly about what has been driving it for over two decades, but we will at least begin to do that by talking about what is not in Michael Maltzen Architecture's portfolio or on the boards at the moment. By discussing at what point is a commission not worth it, what kind of line gets drawn with the decision to forfeit the possibility of work, and how such decisions are made in the studio. So as I promised Michael, <laughs> we've been starting these conversations with the most important or most memorable decision to not engage or to drop a commission. And if that hasn't happened, can you imagine it happening? And on what grounds? Uh, well, that, uh, that question of, uh, of whether you uh, take a project or not uh, and what it means to 
the office as a whole and to um, the individuals here and to me personally is something that I think is a, uh, it's a daily question, actually. It's not, I'm not sure that, uh, of course, there are moments when there's a, a particular project uh, and it creates uh, a, a significant moment um, of decision. Uh, but I think in a lot of ways, what's more true is that it's a constant navigation, uh, a constant questioning of what uh, makes sense or doesn't make sense um, in, in, in terms of, of, of the projects. And I think that also changes. It's changed from uh, when the office first started and it was um, uh, really just myself and maybe one other person at most to a point where you have uh, you have more people and uh, and a longer um, history of of your work um, that probably changes those decisions probably change more from a practical or even I would say maybe a strategic sense but I think philosophically something stays very consistent and that is uh, uh, around the question of whether uh, the projects, um, uh, are, are projects that uh, feel like they um, are a part of your ongoing um, interests and investigations uh, and whether they um, have any significant um, red flags uh, around um, what the projects mean uh, especially culturally, socially, uh, and, and politically. Um, so I'm not sure there's been a, uh, a defining no. Um, it's mm -hmm. probably been a, a more regular um, uh, set of questions. I mean, we're interested in lots of little no's too. <laughs> but let's uh, flip the question for a little bit and talk about what you have preferred to. And um, when I look at the work, I see two distinct, though of course overlapping, bodies of work. One dedicated to shaping LA, in which your collaboration with housing developers uh, and housing as a key piece of city's social infrastructure and image are vitally important. And that takes various forms. And then institutional work that is oriented around the specific content and immediate context of each of the buildings, wherever they are. Hmm. So maybe let's start with housing. How do you think about it at your firm? And what would you say has been crucial in making these commissions and collaborations work? Well, for, for me, this is actually an, interesting um, to flip the question, as, as you're saying, because... Uh, I probably feel that uh, I'm looking to find ways to say yes more than I am to say no. And the reason for that is that uh, not, not because I'm just uh, trying to say yes, but I, I think often um, the bigger challenge is to find a way to make a project work. Um, and make a project work in its in its uh, full complexity. And more and more, the kind of work over the years, uh, the kind of work that we've done, I think, has often been marked by uh, a, a real 
complexity and housing has been um, central to that. When we first started to work for the Skid Row Housing Trust in downtown Los Angeles, uh, they approached uh, us to do what was at the time their first permanent supportive housing project for formerly homeless uh, individuals. It was a different model. Uh, it was one that they had no experience with. It was a, a model that was just beginning to uh, be discussed in the supportive housing um, community and world. Uh, but it had some um, it had some genuine complexities that were a part of the program. It was meant to support a more permanent community. It wasn't a shelter or a transitional uh, housing model. It had other program that uh, had not normally been a part of of those buildings, uh, and there there were really no prototypes um, for that. And it was going to have a very difficult budget from a construction standpoint because of the kind of financing that uh, a nonprofit like the Housing Trust had to put together, stack together to make a project uh, like that feasible. Much of our work in the beginning uh, was, before we even started to design the project, was to try to design an approach to how you would uh, make a project like this work. Um, what were the what were the issues that we were going to have to deal with? What how could you schedule that work? How uh, could you work with the city of Los Angeles and and all of its all of the agencies to develop pathways for them to permit the project with a project that was unusual for them? Um, that really required a series of um, uh, in a way, affirmations um, mm -hmm. in terms of the goals of the project. And that really became the underlying structure set, if you will, for for the project. It was the thing that we kept returning to, um, taking on that kind of, readily taking on that kind of complexity um, is something that I think continues to be one of the things that really defines uh, the practice and um, the conversations in the office. Uh, would you say that? Would you say that taking on or beginning this collaboration with the Skid Row uh, nonprofit that basically uh, that affected uh, what you think of as preferring to do now? I think it had a, a huge effect on the office. It was um, when we did the first project, Rainbow Apartments, I, I would say it was one of the defining moments of the practice because we had been working in downtown Los Angeles on, as I had mentioned, inner city arts. It was a multi-phase project for a nonprofit in a part of the city where architecture very uh, rarely seemed to exist. When we were, were approached by the trust, uh, I'd wanted to do housing for, well, since I was in school since I was an undergraduate. Um, I thought housing was something that all architects did. Um, I had all of the history that I had looked at, especially modernist history, had housing as one of its its central um, typologies. So I, I imagine that's the kind of work that as an architect you would do. And then it turned out that that was not the case. It was seemed impossible to get housing. And I had 
largely come to believe that I wouldn't get to do housing. Uh, so when the trust first approached us with this problem to kind of project where they were really changing the, the model of what they were doing, I was ecstatic because I was finally going to get to do housing. At the time, we had in the office quite a bit of institutional work, uh, museums, higher education work, uh, work that was more traditionally thought of as the place where architecture existed. And I had a bit of a panic after I said yes, because I thought uh, people in the office wouldn't want to work on this housing project. They were working on um, the more the more visible uh, projects. But over the next couple of weeks, people kept approaching me surreptitiously when I was going, I'd go to the espresso machine or something like that, saying, we, really, we heard we have housing, we really want to work on that project. And I came to realize that it was a typology that really resonated um, across many, many different uh, sensibilities and values for people, not only, again, formally, historically, but uh, because of what it meant in the city, what it meant mm-hmm. socially and culturally. In, you know, in rapidly reading through a number of uh, texts that covers your recent work in L.A., I was left with two terms, or at least two terms floated up for me uh, out of all of those various uh, articles, and they were lightness and optimism. And I thought we should discuss these as terms uh, a bit or as effects or as the mood of the work. Uh, and maybe if I were to pose a question, uh, it would be about your take on architecture's agency in this day and age and in L.A. or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And so you've begun saying something about that. But if you, uh, it would be great to to keep going on that sort of question of agency or maybe draw a line between and connect these uh, attitudes, if you recognize them, uh, and aesthetic, aesthetic concerns in your work um, to the question of agency? Well, I, I think it's, it is important to um, be very self-reflective as architects and, and for architecture to be self-reflective about uh, what architecture can and, and potentially cannot do. Uh, and to to constantly be critical about about the role of of architects and and architecture especially um, uh, in cities in culture and society today um, because I, I on the one hand I am maybe more optimistic than ever that architecture as a discipline has uh, has a deep role uh, when you look at um, the range of, of challenges that exist um, in front of us uh, at the moment. But I also think we have to be very careful that uh, architecture on its own is not going to uh, solve or save the day and uh, that these problems are, are deeply um, complex and they they take an enormous amount of work and collaboration uh, and perseverance um, to uh, to attack them. Uh, there's the, the possibility for architecture to to walk in as a singular hero. I think is um, you know is really a fantasy. Um, what what I've been um, convinced of partially out of the work around housing, 
reinforced by our work uh, around um, public institutions and what they mean um, in cities and in culture, what kind of role they can play, and reinforced probably even more fully by watching recently the Sixth Street Viaduct open um, and the ability for infrastructure to really play a role in the civic conversation um, in cities, that architecture can both be uh, present in the widest range of contexts, um, and architecture also has a, a very special capability to choreograph really challenging, really complex sets of issues, um, to find ways to uh, bring those ideas, uh, those sometimes competing ideas together into a more synthetic approach um, to a problem, um, to represent that, to talk about that, to find ways to be in a conversation with the larger community as a whole, obviously to finally realize um, those projects and make a form that represents maybe a, a different way or a path forward in the city to some of these challenges. And, and that, that range of capabilities is something that, again, I, I think is, is a kind of superpower that architecture has. And I, I feel very, um, very confident that um, architecture, because of that, has, has a real role as, mm-hmm. as we're, we're facing some of these challenges. It, it's one of the reasons, well, I just, you know, it's one of the reasons that you were asking about the difference between saying no and saying yes. And, you know, to go back to this idea of saying yes, one of the things that, one of the reasons why I've, I've tried to find ways to say yes is to um, take on as many different types of projects in as many different types of places as possible to keep trying to prove, as I've said, you know, in the world, but maybe even just to myself, to try to keep proving that architecture can exist almost everywhere and that uh, that's an important role for architecture to continue to try to um, uh, prove to itself. I mean, maybe it would be useful to talk about what kinds of things have to align uh, in a situation for it to go as well as you're describing. Hmm. Like what is it, or maybe what are the conditions that you, uh, that enable you to do your best work or produce the architecture that has these sort of qualities that you're interested in or agency that you're interested in, in the city. And Hmm. yeah, let's start with that. Or also I can attach to it uh, the question of the skills that maybe go into orchestrating such a situation. Hmm. The the bridge is, in, in some ways, I think, a good project to look at because, uh, at least for a part of a part of that question, because it's not a it's not a type of project that's normally in the sc- uh, scope of of what architecture does mm-hmm. or where architects are are often involved. Um, and it's it's really a civil engineering and a, a structural engineering project. Um, it's the kind of project that's that's normally done by infrastructure um, in- engineers and and uh, contractors. Um, but the questions that were really a part of the brief that the city of Los Angeles 
um, developed at the beginning of, of the project and, and the ambitions that they developed were things like uh, trying to make a bridge that uh, had a had, had an iconic uh, quality from the beginning that represented something about the city because the bridge it was replacing, the old 6th Street Viaduct, had that role in the city. So the new bridge needed to have that role. Uh, it should be a bridge that tried to find ways to connect uh, communities together in ways that traditional infrastructure has not in the city. Um, you can make the argument that infrastructure in, in many, especially post-war cities, has done more to divide communities than, than connect them. Mm -hmm. uh, that it had to have a strong sustainability um, approach and a sustainability approach that was working on on a number of different levels. There, were, there was really a range of questions that the bridge was asking. I think much of our work, much of my work, beyond the the, the traditional aesthetic um, role that you play uh, in a project, was to find ways to keep insisting that all of those complex issues had to find a home and had to interweave with each other. All of those issues interweave with each other so that they became inherent parts of, of the overall uh, design scheme and approach. That meant that the conversations that you needed to have as an architect and the kind of learning that you had to um develop around all of these complex issues, politically, structurally, again, from a civil engineering standpoint, just to have conversations with all of the different, uh, as they would say, stakeholders, meant that um, you really had to constantly expand how you normally, where, how you normally define, again, the uh, the role of the architect, um, which can be quite circumscribed often in these in these projects. Uh, I, I think I spent more time explaining um, why something uh, was important or related to uh, another seemingly um, separate issue than actually um, working on the design of, of the project. Uh, it, it means that agency, I think has to be thought of as a very expansive, ongoing, somewhat relentless uh, endeavor. Mm -hmm. I mean, have you ever worked with, I'm going to call them clients, who uh, you're not aligned with? Uh, yes. Yes, in the sense that... Um, there are disagreements. We've had, we have had, um, in a couple of cases, clients who turned out to be really not in alignment with things that um, uh, I felt were things I, I, I could agree to. So in that sense, I guess that does go back to your first question. There have been a couple of cases where uh, after the first phase of a project, it, it, it was clear that it, it there wasn't really a sense of agreement, not not in the in the practical aspects of the project, uh, but really in 
in the values that each of us had about um, the role uh, of a the role of architecture. Uh, I think in the world as as a whole, and mm-hmm. uh, so it really came down to issues of, of of true philosophical differences. And at in a couple of cases, um, we did we just didn't continue. But I I think that there I I think it's partially the role of the architect to find ways to. Uh, in a sense, solve the solve the problem, even when the problem is set up in a way uh, that you don't feel necessarily comfortable uh, with, or you don't. Um, it doesn't fit necessarily so easily into the work that you've done f- before. For mm-hmm. instance, I, I have I have this thing I talk about in the office that. We can't ever try to convince a client. I don't think you can convince a client of anything long term. You may be able to um, make a compelling argument somehow about something that you really want, you think is important or you want to do. If the client ultimately doesn't believe in it, you may have won that battle for you know the day. But the client is always going to come back and eventually say, "I don't feel comfortable with that." Um, it, 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 it's, it's something that you know they fundamentally don't believe in. So, is there a way to, is there a way to find a pathway that uh, relates to their very real concerns, if substantial concerns, with the design? And I think. Often, what I've found is in those moments, if if those concerns are coming from a very genuine, authentic place, that it forces you to um, often invent something um, in the project that you might not have have expected. It challenges it challenges your work, uh, and that I I think is. Um, yeah, sometimes that's that's where some of the best invention in our work has has come from. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted to quote from another piece uh, in which you spoke about housing. So, but try to extrapolate from it maybe beyond. So you said uh, that reducing the presence of those things we usually call architecture demands that we return to what is most effective about architecture and the way it frames social relationships. Uh, and after you said this in the context of this piece on housing, you ended with an emphasis on the most fundamental elements of architecture, like courtyards, double-loaded corridors, maybe edges. Uh, mm. And I wanted to sort of go to that question of what is fundamental and more, or maybe the question, again, that c- might connect your your aesthetic interests and, and disciplinary interests to the larger sets of attitudes and optimism hmm. well there you could you could answer the question of what's fundamental in architecture probably in two ways I mean one is that there are very deep fundamental qualities that architecture is working with and I do think that those are around the 
possibility of 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 making space that um, allows for people to connect, to start to um, quite literally see each other, to um, create community. Um, that uh, in the case of housing, these are places where people live out both their private, uh, their semi-public, and their public lives very often. That the buildings are uh, a real connection, uh, as Yona Friedman talked about, between um, the house, uh, the front lawn, um, the street, the the full range of our 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 social and um, private public lives. And then there are maybe the the pragmatic fundamentals um, in a project. You mentioned the double loaded corridor as something which is is very typical in housing um, as a, I guess you could say it as a, typology. a piece of a type, yeah, type, maybe it's a piece of a typology. Mm-hmm. Um, those are often the places that we, I would say, go after. Um, we attack very directly in our work. I'm interested in that um, because in those in those uh, traditional forms, um, there are often traditions, and those traditions get passed from one project to another uh, without much of a, much reflection or examination. And so it also brings along a lot of preconceived uh, ideas about the way that we live. When we did the very first project for uh, Skid Row Rainbow Apartments that I mentioned before, maybe one of the most radical things that we did in that project um, was actually very simple, and it was to uh, crack the building open so that it was no longer a building, a traditional building of double-loaded quarters. Um, it was all single-loaded quarters. It's something we can do in the the climate in Los Angeles. People can be in, on, on these outdoor walkways and balconies. But it had a very important, very deep relationship to trying to change the equation around these formerly homeless individuals' lives. To be in these buildings, you had to have been chronically homeless, which meant you had been on the street for uh, approximately 10 years. And in in that time, almost everybody, understandably, develops this kind of psychological shell bubble around themselves to just live in in, in a sense, in the public all the time. So when they come into the buildings, um, they're very reticent to engage with other individuals. And I thought that the building, by having these single-loaded corridors, could create a kind of single uh, semi-public realm where you couldn't just go in the elevator, go up to your floor, walk down an anonymous double-loaded corridor and disappear into your room. Mm-hmm. You had to, um, as you walked to your apartment, be in this um, community courtyard, not fully engaged, but at least visible, and that that would start to help create a sense of, of a, a safer uh, um, re-immersion into, into public life. And it w- was very effective. It worked. And it was a case where uh, that first project really changed almost all of the other buildings that Skid Row 
did subsequently. Single loaded quarters became became the norm, um, even if they were slightly more expensive to build, because it had a deep effect on the life uh, on, on life on the foundation of what the what the project was. I I think that the maybe to the second part the aesthetic piece of it. In those first projects, we were working with very simple materials, uh, stucco plaster, because it was was very inexpensive. It's also a material that I've come to love because it's it's very plastic. Um, it's it's quite fluid. You can do many things to it. You can develop many textures uh, with it. It captures light in a very beautiful way. And in the context of Skid Row. Uh, the lightness of it, really the white stucco plaster, which comes from traditions of of early Los Angeles architecture, uh, that it had this, this very optimistic feeling to it in the context of a gritty uh, inner city part of, of Los Angeles. And it really stood out from the rest of the city and that was also something that, I, in effect, I was I thought was was important here as well. We continued to then use that material in all of the projects because it it started to not only well it continued to uh, be about this idea of lightness and optimism in the city, but it also started to connect the the all of the different buildings that we did with the trust into a family of buildings. And it got at this other goal that, that I've had with these projects that even though each one is quite small, 80 to 90 units, that uh, over time doing a number of them, uh, it becomes actually quite a large project in its total. And it has a, a, a quite large effect on the, uh, if you will, the map of the city. Um, mm-hmm. And that has, I think, it changes the way that maybe you, you begin to have the conversation about the scale of change in, in a city. I wanted to talk about um, both the tectonic innovation and research that you've been undertaking within the work and uh, and sort of to really ask how you locate it in the conversation with clients or how these different situations have enabled it or where it's sort of... Uh, registers uh, within the office as a conversation. And then I wanted to talk about uh, the role of models for the internal workings of your team and office and maybe also that conversation with clients. Uh, You also described their presence as artifacts as important uh, in the office. And so these are maybe connected. We can can tackle them Mm -hmm. together as questions. Well, your first question about about uh, tectonics um, and how that relates to maybe the conversations mm-hmm. with clients. Possibly a good example is uh, actually another housing project, Star Apartments, um, that we completed a few years ago. Star Apartments is uh, 104 units, the largest actually of all of the projects we've done with the Housing Trust. And it's built using uh, prefabricated uh, modular units that were brought to the site, built uh actually in this case in Idaho and, and, and transported to the site. It was the first 
a multifamily prefabricated project in in Los Angeles. Before that, you weren't really able to do uh, multifamily prefabrication for a series of somewhat arcane regulations. But to do that, we we also were given a site by the client where there was an existing building that they wanted to save. And that meant that there really was no room on the site to lay down materials and to stage the project from. So it started to force us to look at ways of reconceptualizing how you would even structure the project. Eventually, we came to a solution where we built more or less a concrete tray that was lifted above the existing building. We needled down through the existing building uh, structurally with a series of gravity and and seismic uh, structural elements, and then stacked the units on top very quickly when after the tray was built, all of the units were stacked in under 30 days, which is quite remarkable. That invention really came from the specific needs of the project. It wasn't something that we weren't looking to try to do prefabrication beforehand. It had been, we had looked at it a bit, but it really came from uh, a direct rethinking of how to try to take on the the construction problem in maybe an unusual, but actually in the end, very efficient and uh, and direct way. The client uh, was a part of those conversations from the very beginning. And I think that's, that's important, that it has to be something which has a benefit for them and a, a tangible benefit that they can see. Uh, sometimes that benefit can also be what the project brings in terms of identity within within their world as well. They they were really seen as an innovator and a leader because of that that project. But it, it really started with how they would build the building most efficiently. And then models are useful in talking to clients or to build a kind of idea in the studio. I you know models have been a part of the the culture, the design culture of the office uh, from the very beginning. It's something that has to do with, has always had to do with the way I feel most comfortable working three-dimensionally. It has evolved to take on, I think, a greater and greater importance in terms of the way that I we even think about, about space um, within projects within urban contexts, within uh, buildings themselves. And it, it for me, is an extremely useful tool uh, in contrast to trying to design digitally uh, because of no matter what, no matter how fantastic the software is, for me, there's always this challenge of seeing the building two-dimensionally and it, they've turned out to be extremely useful communication tools in the conversations with the client and also with the the communities in which the buildings mm-hmm. are are going to be built. I think for the clients, it's fairly clear they get to see something very tangible. Um, I'm not sure clients 
always, no matter how experienced they are, truly understand drawings in the way that we as architects, having been trained to understand the abstraction of two dimensions, uh, understand, understand drawing. So the models become very useful, maybe sometimes even a little too useful. <laughs> sometimes they see things that, and they question them and are really push back on certain things that they might not have seen in two dimensions. So sometimes okay. the drawings might have hid something and maybe you would have, wouldn't have had to have changed things in the way that sometimes you do in the models. But I think in the end, that's also uh, extremely important because it builds up a great deal of trust in the conversation with the clients. And that question of trust is what I, where I've found models to be very effective out in the conversations with the community. Another example of that is a very large model we made of the Sixth Street Viaduct. The viaduct is connecting two areas, downtown Los Angeles, this here, an area uh, now called the Arts District, with uh, Boyle Heights, which is is really, it's on the east side of the LA River. It, over the years, has developed into really the heart, um, socially, politically, of uh, the Latino community in the city. There has been a great deal of fear on uh, within that community around gentrification, not just because of the, the viaduct, but just the, because of its location and the pressures that you're seeing uh, because of density and affordability in the city as a whole. The Sixth Street Viaduct was also something, the old viaduct that was very deeply embedded in their culture. So there was, it was a beloved bridge. There was a lot of anxiety about this new bridge. And as we were in community meetings with drawings and renderings, I kept feeling like there was always this sense of mistrust around the drawings. And I understand that because frankly, drawings, we all know can be manipulated to show they can be taken from a certain vantage point. They are the they are the architects. They come from the architect's decision around how to portray the project. You decide where you're going to take the rendering from, what time of day, what the atmosphere is of that that drawing. I wanted the community to feel more um, involved with the overall design, so we ended up making a model kind of preposterous model. It was um, 68 feet long of the entire bridge. Oh, wow. Um, and we had to get the gymnasium in one of the local schools to show the model in for the community. But it was incredible uh, because the people, these meetings were always uh, heavily, heavily attended, hundreds of people. And it totally changed the conversation because it was no longer this feeling of that we were trying to convince the community of something. They started to take ownership of, of the bridge because they could quite literally wrap their arms around it. It wasn't that they didn't have questions or they didn't have criticisms, but you could have a very open dialogue uh, around what those concerns were, stripped of a lot of the mistrust um, that other that things like drawings often often bring. So, 
I think that it's important to use whatever forms create the most uh, direct, open dialogue that uh, you can. And I've found models to be to be the most useful tool for us in that regard. Participatory in a way. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, here's my last-ish question. <laughs> Did you ever regret not taking a commission or vice versa? I, I have regretted not taking commissions. Not that often, but there have been a few of them. And mostly it's because I think after the fact, I came to, it was, it was generally because when we decided not to, my um, role in that decision to say no was, came from what I thought the project could be or was about. And later on, I found a way to find a different possibility in it that could have been, that wasn't so clear at the time. And that that possibility, because it wasn't so clear, actually meant that, that you were going to have to find some completely different approach or, or more radical form to, to, to solve that problem. And I just, I didn't see it at that time. And I came to see it later on. And I don't know if I was, and that's when I regretted not taking the project. The challenge in that is that I don't know if, if what I then saw as a possibility actually could have happened or not. Because the only proof, of course, is to have done the project and seen if you could have, have pulled it off. So... You know, maybe my maybe my regret is is my own fiction, but nonetheless, you know, you, you live mm -hmm. with the regret, and the, those regrets never go away for architects. I think. All right, thank you for talking to me today, Michael, and listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of I would prefer not to. 